Hey friends, thank you for tuning in to the Ridgedale Students Podcast, a ministry to students, parents, and the community of Ridgedale Baptist Church located in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Our aim is to help students encounter Christ and be equipped as disciples to be sent out to engage the nations. If you listen and find this to be a helpful resource, we'd love for you to consider leaving a rating or review. We hope you're blessed by this episode as you walk the way of Jesus alongside us. Enjoy. One thing, though, about camp that you will probably never experience that was a staple of camps whenever I was your age was this thing called a trust fall. Anybody ever heard of a trust fall? Yeah. Darian, I knew you would. I figured like most of y'all would have heard it. Have any of y'all ever done a trust fall? Like a straight up trust fall like off of a platform. Okay, okay. So, back when I was going to camp, there was this thing called trust falls. But it was not like a stand on the ground and kind of lean back and fall into someone standing directly behind you. It was a like eight foot tall wooden platform in the air that you would stand on backwards and literally just let yourself fall into the arms of a bunch of strangers who you were in like a small group or something with. One of the most intense things, like everybody was always building in the low ropes course type stuff until the last day when if your group had completed enough things and they had gelled enough together, you would get to do the trust fall off this eight foot platform. So my group, one year at camp, had been particularly good. We had knocked out every single challenge throughout the week. So we get to the last day of our low ropes course stuff, and they ask us, they're like, all right, guys, you can keep doing kind of like the basic, simple stuff, or we'll let you guys do the trust fall. And we were all like, yes. That means that you've arrived, that you are him if you've reached the level where you can do the trust fall. And so our whole group goes over and does the trust fall. So someone's debriefing us, and they're saying, hey, listen, here's how this is going to work. You've all got to stand like this. You've got to hold your arms out like this. Keep some tension in your elbows, or otherwise your person is going to fall straight through your arms and probably break their pelvis. And so they're giving us the whole rundown. Well, we start kind of simple. We get like the smallest people up onto the trust fall, and they fall, and it's simple. We catch them, no big deal. We feel like we're accomplishing something. So the person facilitating was like, all right, guys, are you ready to start trying to catch some of the bigger people in your group? I was one of those people. And so I was like, "Uh, maybe. But I get up on the platform and I'm standing there and I am like as scared as possible because we've got like three girls on our group that are like 78 pounds soaking wet. And I know that they're going to be the ones who let their arms fall and I'm just going to go straight to the ground. I get up there. I fall. They catch me. Incredible moment for me. I felt like a rock star. Then the person facilitating the trust fall is like, all right, listen, everyone in your group has gone. Like we caught every student. But they're like, let me ask you something. Are your leaders part of your group or not? We had two adult leaders. One of them was like a a pretty small, like petite woman. She had been like a cheerleader in college or something. So we're like, oh, got this. The other is about a 350-pound grown man with a beard down to his chest. And we're like, okay, we've got mom, but I don't know that we've got dad. But they're like, no, you're either going to do both or you're going to do none, and you're going to like not complete this task. And so all of us are like, crap, we have to complete the task. We've got to be the best group. And so we're like, all right, oh, you know what? Fine, we'll do it. So we get up there. Mom goes first. Mom falls easy. Pie, cake. Nothing. We catch her. 
<laughs> the, the male leader of the group begins ascending the ladder to get to this eight-foot platform. And all of us are watching as the boards of the ladder creak underneath him. And we're all like, oh, gosh. If we drop this man, we fail. If we don't even try and catch him, we fail. And if we catch him, there's a good chance that some of us might die. And then one of us like speaks up and they're like, listen, guys, we've got this. We can catch dad. We're going to get this and we're going we're gonna to complete it. And they're like, I mean, this kid must have played football because he was giving us like the ultimate halftime speech, just like rallying the troops. So he gets us worked up into a frenzy and we're like, we're going to do it. We're going to catch dad, and this is going to be awesome, and all these other groups are going to be jealous of us, and it's going to be fantastic. So dad gets up on the platform. He's got his back to us. All of us are like, you had to say braced and ready before you let somebody fall. So all of us are braced and ready, and we're going to catch 350-pound dad falling on top of us from an eight-foot platform. And so we give him the countdown. Three, two, one, fall. And he goes, falling (laughs) with all of the excitement and hubris and like we got this in us we watch as he falls from eight foot up and all of us are as confident as can be we're going to catch this man he falls straight through our arms but the back three people are able to catch his head but there's so much weight to it that they all get pulled into each other Three of them smash into each other's faces, and one of them breaks their nose. And it was a horrible end to an otherwise pretty fantastic week of camp. This is why, this is why, you will never do a trust fall at a camp in 2023, or beyond 2023 most likely, because things like that happen. What? That's true. I'm still not going to do it. So... Last week, last week, last week, we talked about the fact that when we encounter trouble, we respond in one of three ways. You better remember what the one of three ways are, or the three ways are. All right, I'm not going to wait on you. We either doubt, we run, or we reach. We doubt the goodness of God, and that leads us to run. We run from the presence of God, or what we can do is we can reach to God. We can say, God, I trust you. I believe in you. But that requires something of us, doesn't it? Like, it, it's really simple. I hated it kind of after the fact as I was thinking about those three things. It, it makes it really simplistic to just say, hey, just reach to God when trouble comes. Because in reality, trouble can present itself in a lot of very different ways for us. Trouble might be you're worried about a test, and then it's easy. Oh, God, please help me out on this test. I've done that a million times all throughout college. Other times, it's a lot more difficult. God, my family is breaking up. Like, I'm, I'm dealing with a death or, or some sort of grief in the family. It's at those points where it's a lot harder to, for us to just reach to God, isn't it? So I don't like simplistic answers. I never want to give you guys simplistic answers for difficult questions. And so what I want to do tonight is I want us to start digging into what is the foundation of us reaching to God. For us to reach to anything requires a level of something. One, it requires vulnerability from us. You can't reach to something if you're not vulnerable to it. If I'm falling off of a cliff and there's two people up there, one that I know and one that I don't know, I'm not reaching to the person that I don't know because I don't trust them. There's a level of vulnerability in us reaching for somebody, and vulnerability requires that one thing. It requires trust. Trust is hard for us, though, isn't it? Like, who here thinks that they're really good at trusting people? I believe that, Zach. I believe that. Cooper, yeah, I believe that for you, too, Cooper. Hey, Pierce. 
But for most of us, trusting is hard for people. I believe for you too, Perry. For most of us, trusting is hard. We live in a world, we live in a culture where people are constantly telling us, man, don't trust in anybody. Everybody's going to let you down. Everybody's going to fail you. You seem to look out for you, yourself. You're all just, just be about you, man. We're constantly being told that we should not trust in anybody or anything, really. We should just constantly trust and put all of our faith in ourselves. It's really difficult to live like that, though. I don't know if you've tried it. I've tried it for a few seasons. Very not recommended. Highly not recommended for us to just trust in ourselves because ourselves are constantly changing. They're untrustworthy most often. See, trust and trouble walk hand in hand. I really think that. Trust and trouble walk hand in hand. They either walk to our good, they walk towards us trusting in something that's good and trusting in something that's for us, and we walk into good things, or we put our trust in things that are not trustworthy. They can't ultimately hold up under the weight of our trouble. And it then leads us into more and more and more difficulty. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to work towards trusting well so that we can enter into trouble well. And my main teaching point would be this. That we will ultimately reach for what we trust. We ultimately reach for who we trust is where we reach. Who we trust is where we reach. So before we get into it, i got one point tonight and that's it. Before we get into that though, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, uh, God, that trust is a real thing, that we can place our trust in things that are solid and firm and foundational. God, we just pray tonight, help us to see that trust is possible. God, that trust isn't some like foreign concept that we can never grasp. God, that you are the one that we can trust in most. God, help us to lean into that. Help us to trust you well. Help us to live lives that are not troubled by trouble, but that are trusting in the midst of trouble. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, one point tonight. Super simple. We have to understand who we trust. We have to understand who we trust. Oxford Dictionary, any of the high school boys in here know that Oxford Dictionary is garbage, but it can hit it well sometimes. Oxford Dictionary defines trust as this. Firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. If we're going to ask ourselves who we trust, we have to start at that place. And it makes it really easy for us. Oxford Dictionary, also Webster's, kind of changes it by like one word. But the dictionary definition of trust lays it out really easily for us. It's simple. Trust comes down to reliability, to truthfulness, to ability, and to strength. Now for our context, I want us to do this in just one of two areas. There's either going to be one of two places that we place our trust in. Ultimately, we're either going to place our trust in people... We're going to place our trust in God. We're going to place our trust in people or we're going to place our trust in God. So what I want to do is do a comparison between these two groups in all four of these categories. And so one point, but it's kind of four points, but stick with me. The first point, though, is reliability. Reliability boils down to someone or something's ability to perform consistently well. Michael Jordan was a reliable scorer. LeBron James is a reliable scorer. Pat Bev, reliable troll. We see that these things are consistent. They're reliable. We can count on them being the same over and over and over again. So let's consider reliability when it comes to people. Pew Research, this research group that I like to follow and kind of read some of their articles. Pew Research did a study in 2018. They asked the question, what percentage of people can be easily swayed on major topics based off of a single social media post? 
Just one social media post can flip somebody's total opinion on what they believe about a big issue. And here's what they found. That 14% of Americans can have their whole opinions changed on something just based off of one social media post. That's not too bad. 14% is not terrible. But then we look at it as focused on teenagers. 29% of teenage men in America can have their position on something changed by seeing one social media post. Guys, that's not a good look for us. Like three out of ten of us are going to have our positions changed by no conversations just by seeing something on Instagram. That's not a great look, fellas. Girls, you're a little bit better. Actually, you're a lot better most of the time. 18% of you can have your opinions flipped on something by just seeing one social media post. It doesn't take relationship. It doesn't take conversation. It doesn't take a lot of like back and forth on something. It's seeing and then believing something completely opposite of what you said you believed before. That's kind of an alarming statistic when we think about it, isn't it? Like, man, one thing completely detached from relationship can change our opinions on something that's big, that's foundational to the world that we live in. Now, don't hear this. Don't hear that people are not trustworthy. All of you have people in your lives right now who are trustworthy. I, I hope that there are people in this room right now that you see as trustworthy. What that is to say, though, is that when we consider trusting someone, we have to ask ourselves questions about who we trust. We have to ask ourselves questions about the validity of the trust that we're placing in the person we're trusting in. It's difficult. We don't just blindly trust people. Hopefully. Hopefully we don't do that. But now, we've seen this with people. Let's consider this with God, though. Deuteronomy 7, we find like the very earliest uh, portions of God interacting with people. And God in Deuteronomy 7 says that he's going to make a covenant with people. He's calling the people to himself. And he's declaring allegiance to Israel. And he verifies his promise in verses 6 through 9 of Deuteronomy 7. It reads this. It says, Oh, no, I started with you. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them. Man, I totally read the wrong one. That was a chapter before. Chapter 7, verse 6, says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, but the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to you, to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's a lot of people. A thousand generations of people, God still says, I'm going to keep my promises to you. God is fiercely loyal. Another way to say that is God is fiercely reliable to us. Look what's happening here. If God makes a promise to you and God breaks that promise, what has God just done? It starts with an S. Sin. He sinned. If God makes a promise to people and then fails to keep that promise, God has sinned. And what can God not be if God has sinned? Holy. And he can't be God. God, at the very beginning of the Bible, is saying, I'm making a promise to you. And I'm making that promise based off of my own holiness, based off of my own righteousness. So if I break my promise to you at any point throughout a thousand generations, I fail to be God. God banks his entire godness on his own reliability. 
It's crazy. Friends, God is the most reliable being in all of creation. He's outside of creation, but he is the most reliable thing that we can place our trust in. And then we flip over to the New Testament and we see promises that God continues to make throughout this, this new portion of Scripture. We read 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast, your, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Like God could say that I'm going to promise to do something for you, but I'm going to promise this and kind of be detached and removed from you. But rather he says, listen, cast your cares and your anxieties on me. Why? Because I actually care about you. I'm not like blind to your feelings. I'm not ignorant to the hurts that you, you go through. He says, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. He also says in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Listen, one thing that God will never ask anyone to do. You can check the entire Bible. You will never find an instance of God doing this. God never asks someone to blindly trust what he says. He will never ask anyone to blindly believe what he says. Christianity is not a blind, like, faithless religion. It is a religion of thinking. You watch Jesus all throughout the Gospels, and what does Jesus say when he calls someone to, to come and follow him? He says, just come and watch. Come and see what I do. Watch. Take, like, stock of everything I'm saying, and then put it up next to reality and see if I'm not faithful, if I'm not reliable. He's never asking us to be thoughtless. He's constantly inviting us to come and to see if he is as true as he says he is. And so God, I would say, is reliable. But next, is he truthful? One of the things that we all struggle with at some level is this thing called confirmation bias. You've never heard of confirmation bias? Think about it this way. If you're at a basketball game and your favorite basketball team is playing and it's coming down to the very end of the game, both teams are tied up. Someone goes up for a shot, and the ref calls no foul. The player that you're cheering for misses the shot, and you lose the game. Everyone in the stands that's cheering for the team you're cheering for is going to say what? That's a foul. That's a foul. How can you not call that? Ref, are you blind? Oh, my gosh. Terrible call. We should have won that game. We definitely won that game. The other people... Watching the exact same game are going to say, are you crazy? That wasn't a foul. He's just soft. He never even touched him. Now what's going to happen is you may go home that night. You're going to watch SportsCenter. You're going to turn it on. You're going to watch the replay of that game. And there may be evidence that proves nobody got touched. No foul happened. Will you be like totally chill about it after that? No. Absolutely not. You're still going to be ticked. That is confirmation bias at its core. It's us wanting to believe things regardless of what the evidence is. Us taking evidence that we see and either regarding it as truthful or totally disregarding it because it disagrees with our opinion. And we all struggle with confirmation bias at one level or another. If you were at Fall Retreat with uh, us like two years ago and we watched the Ole Miss-Tennessee game, you saw that in me fully as Tennessee lost that game on what I still will say is the worst call in a college football game ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Um, we all struggle with confirmation bias at some level. But again, let's go back and let's look at what God says. Last week, the main teaching point that I had for this is that God is too good to be false. What I meant by that is the fact that God is too good, he's too kind, he's too loving to lie to us. 
And here's the problem. A lot of people want to tell Christians, they want to tell people within churches, that life should be easy and glamorous and fun and totally chill. You should have the car that you want. You should wear the clothes that you want. You should live in the biggest house possible because that's what God wants for you. Here's the problem with that logic. Jesus never said any of that. He never even got close to saying any of that. Never promised anything like that. Never told us that life would get easy or that it would be fun or that it would be exciting or you would have like this beautiful adventure blog type of life. In fact, he tells us the exact opposite. He tells us that we will be disliked, that difficulty will come our way, that we will actually be hated in the world. But he promises you something even more than ease. He promises his presence throughout everything. How many of us have stories, maybe personally, maybe stories of people in our family, maybe your parents or siblings, where you've gone through something really difficult? You've gone through something that like just gutted you, that ripped you apart. And at the same time, you had some sort of peace where you say, I don't know what it was. But I just felt like God was with me. I don't know what it was, but I felt like God was walking with me through that entire thing. Listen, people will constantly tell you that life should go one way for you. And most of the time, you shouldn't listen to those people. But God is never lying to us when he tells us how life is going to go. He's constantly honest. This will be difficult. You will encounter struggles. But listen, I'm going to be with you through it all. If Jesus was a liar, he was a really bad liar. Because we constantly see the things that he promised us coming true. And we constantly don't see the things that he didn't promise us coming true. See, the truth is, when we follow after him, we follow a God who is truthful. We follow a God who is good and kind and loving and who constantly is seeking our flourishing, even if our flourishing doesn't look like the money and the cars and the clothes and all of the stuff. He's truthful to us. The third thing we have to ask, though, is, is God able? Does he have the ability to do something? This gets into limitation. We all hate limitation. One of the biggest hates of limitation I have, I've never been able to dunk a basketball. I want to be able to dunk a basketball so bad, I just can't do it. Like, I'm not built that way. It's just hard for me. That's cheating. Come on, Jordan. How many of us, though, how many of you have been, like, have been at school with somebody, and all, like, four foot two of them is like, one day, I'm going to play in the NBA. Yeah, we all know the guy. How many of you have been, like, around friends, and you've heard them say, like, man, one day, I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to be a singer. I'm going to do, like, all this crazy stuff. And then they play an instrument or sing a note. And it is not good. Like, your ears are just bleeding afterwards. Yeah, we all know the person. They don't want to believe reality. Confirmation bias, again. But also, how many of us have had someone come to us with a question, and the first response, the the gut reaction for us, is to grab our phone and go to Google? We can't stand not knowing answers. We can't stand the limitation that comes with our humanity. We hate limitation. But here's the thing. We all deal with limitation at some level or another. All of us will be limited in our capacity to do something. I'm 31 years old. If I can dunk a basketball before I die, it'll be a miracle. Like I'll have had to go on some sort of crazy diet and like workout routine if I'm ever going to dunk a basketball. But it's probably not going to happen. We have to deal with the limitations of our humanity. But, 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 then we see God. Again, we have to deal with the limitations of abilities of people. But then we look at God. We turn over to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, we read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Guys, you can believe me or you can't. It doesn't change how I'm going to sleep tonight either way. But understand this. God is able to do whatever he chooses to do. You may, be, like, you may have in your mind something that's absolutely crazy right now. Something that you wish God would do so bad. But there's that nagging voice in your head that's saying, God will never be able to do that. That voice is wrong. God is absolutely 100% able to do whatever he chooses to do. I've never seen it myself, but I've heard stories of missionaries who go off into these like African and South American countries and see like crazy stuff. Stuff that we don't have categories for. And I don't know why that happens there and we don't see it as much here, but I believe the people who have said it. I believe the reaction, the responses that they have to it. Because it's genuine, it's honest. Guys, he is able to do whatever we ask. He's able to do whatever he chooses. And yet, what does he do with his ability? He chooses to say things like what he says in Romans 8.28. He says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God can do anything. He can do something that totally doesn't change or affect our lives. And yet, what does he do with the, the blinding power of his will? He chooses to work together all things for our good and for his glory. The last thing that we have to wrestle with is, is God strong? Is he strong enough to do the things that we need him to do? This is where things get hard because our culture is obsessed with strength. Or maybe not even obsessed with strength so much as it's obsessed with the appearance of strength. How many of you have been told to act strong or act tough? Don't cry. Don't be a baby. All of us, probably at some point or another, have been told something to that effect. We see this addiction to strength all over our culture right now. We see it in the fact that there are skyrocketing numbers of depression and suicide. It's constantly going up every single year, constantly rising. Why? Because people are constantly being told if you're not strong, then you're weak and you're worthless. We see it all over the place with people who reject prayer, with people who reject offers of help. Why do they not pray? Why do they not take offers of help? Because to take any sort of help, to take any sort of assistance is weakness. And if you show weakness, then you're not worthy. You're not worthy of people's time or attention or whatever it may be. We see it in the fact that every generation from my generation all the way down throughout history, every generation prior to your generation has stigmatized therapy. Has. Every generation, except for your generation, has stigmatized people who go to therapy. Because to go to therapy is to show weakness. It's to show that you can't take it. You can't make it through life. That you're not tough. It's why lines or songs like the song Big Girls Don't Cry. Or like lines from, um, I forget the name of the movie. But uh, there's no crying in baseball. Gosh, my mind went blank. There's no crying in baseball. Big girls don't cry. Boys don't cry. Men don't cry. All this stuff. It's our addiction to strength. It's our addiction to appearing, appearing strong. The saddest thing is that we project this lack of strength onto God. 
Oftentimes, we'll read something like what we read earlier. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares, all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And what we often do is we'll take that promise. We'll take God promising. Listen, I can take it. Put it on me. Give your cares. Give your anxieties over to me. And we'll think to ourselves, oh, but can God really carry this? Can God really carry the, the depression that I'm feeling right now? Can He really carry all of the weight of the people who are coming to me with their cares and their anxieties? Can I put those things on Him? And what we'll do is we'll say, here, God, we'll treat Him like I treat Samson a lot of times. Samson comes to me and he wants to do something big, and I give him the smallest task possible because I don't trust that he's capable of doing the big thing. We do this to God constantly. He tells us to cast all our cares and our anxieties on him. And we say, here's the smallest thing in my life. I'm going to hold everything else. Friend, if Jesus is strong enough to carry your sin to the cross, he is most certainly capable. He is most certainly strong enough of carrying you through the seasons that are most difficult for you. He is more than capable of carrying you through your troubles. To wrap up, the other day, or a couple weeks ago, um, I took Samson to High Point. I've been to High Point, you know, the, the back, like the kids' area. They've got that huge tower that winds all the way up to the top. And it's like, it's legitimately tall. Like, I saw some of you middle school boys the last time we were there. Y'all wouldn't go to the top of the tower. I'm not calling out names, but Cooper. Um, I didn't even do it. And so... We like, y'all know how, how scary that can be. So I take Samson there. I take Samson there. It's okay, Cooper. It's okay. I didn't take him. Um, I take Samson there. And Samson, for the first time, he sees it. And he, he's like bugging out. I'm never getting to the top of that tower. There's no way, Dad. There's no way I'm going to do it. So the first time we go, he goes about like the first little loop around, maybe about 10 feet in the air. That's where he stops. He's like, I'm done. There's no way you're getting me any higher than this. He stops right there. Well, then, like, two months later, Sierra tells me that he goes all the way to the top of the thing. And so I'm like, what the heck? Why would he not do it for me? But he does it when his mom's there. It's because he had a bunch of cheerleaders. And so I, I think that's, that's the, the big difference. So then a couple weeks later, I get to take him again. We walk in, and he sees the big tower, and he's kind of, like, staring at the top. And he's like, Dad, I don't know if I can do it. It's like, okay, like, I'm not putting any pressure on him. I don't want you to, like, feel any sort of expectation from me. But, like, I'm just waiting. If you come to me and you want to do this, I'm here for it. The first time he goes up, and he gets about halfway up. He's probably 15, maybe 20 feet in the air. And he gets to that point, and he's really nervous, and he's kind of shaky. And he just jumps off at that point. Like, man, that was awesome, buddy. You did so good. And all these other kids are, like, around him, and they're patting him on the back. Like, man, way to go. Like, I couldn't even do that when I was four. All this stuff. was great. So he's like, Dad, I want to get back in line. So we're standing in line. There's, like, five kids in front of us. He's standing there, and he's kind of looking at the top, and he's looking down, and he's looking at me, and he's looking at the top. And he's trying to figure out, like, what's, he gonna, what's his next move? He gets about two people away from getting in the harness and going up the, the little tower stairs. And he looks at me, and he's like, Dad, do you think I could go to the top? I was like, heck yeah, you can. You've done it before. You can do this, buddy. Like, you can get to the top of that thing, and you'll jump off, and it'll be awesome. And everyone's going to cheer, and it's going to be so cool. You know, Samson, like, he gets that kind of, like, cocky smirk to him. He's like, so I, like, I latch him into this, this harness thing, and I send him up this, this tower step thing. 
He gets about three-fourths of the way up. He goes past the point that he had jumped off of before, and he starts getting shaky again. And he's looking at me, and he's kind of trying to gauge, like, what do I do here? Do I keep going? Do I, like, keep this promise? Do I keep this thing that I said to you? I'm like, bud, just go. Thumbs up. Like, he, he responds to thumbs up. So he, like, keeps going. He keeps pushing up. And he gets about three steps from the top, he looks at me again, he's looking at these other kids, and there's like a line building, and people are like, come on, man. And I was like, hey, shut up. And he looks at me again, and he's trying to gauge, can I do this? Can, can I actually, like, can I actually jump off the top? Again, man, thumbs up, buddy. Go for it, jump off. He gets to the very top, and again, shake. Like, I can see his legs shaking. The tower is, like, actually shaking with him. And he looks at me again. He looks at all these other people. And at that point, like all the other kids are cheering him on. And like, go do it. You can do it, man. And he looks at me. He's like, he's totally ignoring them. He looks at me. I should give him a thumbs up, buddy. Go jump. He does this like ridiculous, like falcon style wing flap. And then he just leaps off the top of that thing. And he goes all the way to the bottom. And every, like all these other kids like jump on him, dog pile. And they're like, yeah, that was awesome, man. He comes over to me and he goes, Dad, did you see it? I did it. I jumped off the top. I say that to say this. What made Samson jump off the top of that thing? Was it because he was like relying in the, the trustworthiness of the equipment that was holding him? Or maybe he was like getting up to the top and he trusted the truthfulness of all the warning labels that said that if you do this this way, you're going to get to the top and everything's going to be fine. Probably not either of those things. Was he trusting in his ability? Like, had he done this so many times that he knew he had practiced himself at the perfection and that he could just jump off and be totally chill? Maybe it was the strength of the rope. He tested it out and pulled it and done all the tests to see if it was going to hold his weight and keep him all the way to the bottom. It's probably none of these things, honestly. But here's the thing with trust. Trust is not a formula. I've been very formulaic about how I've presented how trust works. Reliability and truthfulness and ability and strength and all these other things. But when it comes down to it, trust is not a formula. Trust comes out of relationship. Here's the reason why Samson jumped off the top of that thing confidently. It's because Samson heard the voice of his father and he trusted what his dad said. It's the same way when we encounter trouble as people who are following Jesus. When we come into those spaces, we can have the reliability, we can have the truthfulness, we can have all of the facts about who God is. But what it will ultimately boil down to is what is my relationship like with him? When I hear my father's voice, do I trust what he says? Or am I going to continue to lean back on the facts and hoping for the best, trusting in myself? You can have all the knowledge, you can have all the facts, you can have all the stats, you can have all the stuff. When it boils down to it, you will only trust as far as your relationship with God is taking It's the beautiful thing, it's the difficult thing about God. It's the truth. You will only trust as far as relationship has taken us. Who you trust will be where you reach in times of trouble. And that trust will only come through time and relationship. We will not go through trouble well unless we have our trust in the right place. Can we pray together?